0: We're in the middle of Heaven Prep Academy. It's a uh, series that we're doing. um, It's about getting ready for heaven, flourishing now. It's a series that Jesus himself invented. Uh, It's called the Sermon on the Mount. It's uh, one of his most famous teachings. Uh, For a long time, though, I think it's been really, uh, it's been. It just hasn't been speaking into our lives of how we can transform, how we can change. And yet, I think that it actually has the keys in it to have a life that is ready to take ownership in heaven and at the same time begin flourishing or continuing or increasing our flourishing now. Last week, uh, we talked about a rage, bitterness, anger. And Jesus, every week, is giving us one transforming practice, one initiative, one thing we can take home and do that can begin to change us. And so last week, it was, uh, it was uh, conflict and reconciliation. If there's some place in your life where, you know, you're letting sleeping dogs live, or there's some tension between you and somebody, and uh, you're, you're just not comfortable, something's wrong, it could be something you understand, it might be something you don't, but whatever the case, when you know that there is something wrong in a relationship, uh, Jesus tells us, he's like, go and take care of it. Do the hard work of conflict. Get used to having, to getting in people's faces and trying to really make peace. If you do that, you'll be the kind of person who fits into heaven, where everyone is eternally reconciled. And moreover, you're flourished now. You're going to live a life that's deep the way God designed it now, because you won't have that stuff hanging over your head. The anxiety, the shame, the bitterness that comes when you let those things hang and sit and simmer and fester. And there's an added benefit, you won't be subject to when uh, we likened um, rage and bitterness to like a, a, a bomb. You, you won't be there when it blows up. And you won't have to suffer all of the things that happen to people. That was uh, last week. This week, we'll actually touch on that a little bit uh, later. But really, uh, this week, Jesus is going to um, take head on the epidemic of divorce and adultery. This is a super uncomfortable topic uh, and I am going to let you know that we will talk frankly about some sex stuff today. So be ready for that. Uh, that will happen. Um, it's uncomfortable because so many of us are divorced. So many of us have looked around. Many of us have tried. Many of us have feel like we're, we, we've failed. And so the, the first thing that happens when we see Jesus teaching on this is it's likely uh, to, that we develop a sense of shame. Um, Or condemnation. And I want, as we walk through the the text together, I guarantee you that you're going to see that that's not what Jesus is about. Okay? Jesus is not about that. Jesus, as you will see, uh, as we will see, is in the business of putting an end to something that is destroying his society. Right now, uh, in the United States of America, 40% of first marriages end in divorce. That's a sobering statistic. Um... Interestingly, uh, for the first time uh, ever in the last 30 or 40 years, um, especially with uh, women's liberation, uh, it used to be that uh, divorces were initiated primarily by men. Now 69% of divorces are initiated by a woman. 31% by men in the United States of America. Moreover, it used to be that adultery or cheating on a spouse was primarily a man thing. We've moved to a place of parity now. Where 50 uh, it's, it's even. Uh, about a third of marriages experience uh, some kind of infidelity, and it is uh, 50-50, men and women, for the first time in history. There's uh, a lot we could say about that. We could speculate on some of those things. We might touch on them later. But I, I suggest to you that we really are in the midst of a time where our culture is, is bleeding. And, and for those of you who've, who've been through a divorce, you know that it's not cool. Divorce sucks. You can quote me on that. Nobody likes it. And the people who say they like it are, uh, I don't get that. That's crazy. How do we stop it? Let's just all admit that we're in the middle of a situation where it's, it's gone crazy and, and, and people are being hurt, families are being broken apart, things are really broken. And and the converse of that is, how do we make marriages flourish? Right? How, how is it that a marriage can can have revivication, new life? How can that happen? Well, I'm I'm telling you that uh, today, that's Jesus' teaching. So animating our thought uh, today will be those two questions. How can we stop the adultery and divorce epidemic? And how can we make marriages flourish? Let's look at the text together. This is Matthew 5, 27 to 32. You have heard that the law, um, you might Here in the older translations, you've heard that it was said, but Jesus is referring to the law. Uh, Don't commit adultery. But I tell you that the man who is always looking at women in order to lust has already committed adultery in his heart. If your right eye is the reason you're stumbling, tear it out. Better for you to lose one part of your body and have the whole thing tossed into Gehenna. And if your right hand is the reason that you're stumbling, cut it off, throw it away. Better for you to lose one body part than have the whole thing end up in Gehenna. The law also says whoever divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, with the exception of sexual unfaithfulness, forces her to commit adultery. Forces her to commit adultery. And, who, and, and then whoever ends up marrying her commits adultery too. Those are some pretty, pretty harsh Words, pretty crazy words. And it sounds like what Jesus is doing is he's just setting up uh, an impossible standard. In fact, later on in Matthew, in Matthew 19, he'll reiterate some of this. And the disciples, they, they're like, well, if this is the case, then no one should get married. This is crazy. No one can live up to this standard. This is impossible. It's better, better to just not even deal with marriage at all, the disciples say. And, and Jesus has some, some teaching that, that follows that. Uh, that we won't get into today, but, but anyone who hears this on, on first blush, you just gotta feel like, wow, this, I, I don't understand how this could be the standard that human beings are, are held to. Because let's be honest, when you take one person and another person and you put them together, the chances are things aren't gonna go well. People are by nature selfish. And when you have two people who are being selfish together, it causes a lot of problems. Well, I want you to, um, I want to just give you a sense of of what's going on in the context because Jesus' context is very different from ours, very, very different. And so I want you to get a sense for what it's like um, in Jesus' time, the people who are listening to him, what do they think about adultery and divorce? And so I want to look at adultery and divorce um, in Jesus' day. This is uh, two quotes from two, um, two rabbinic schools. These guys, Shammai and Hillel, they lived about 50 years before Jesus. They were the the premier teachers on divorce and adultery in their time. And they're commenting on the scriptures. We have their, uh, we have, uh, their quotes from the Mishnah. So this is, this is very much what had been in the air when Jesus was uh, alive. The school of Shammai says, A man should not divorce his wife except for indecency found in her, since it says... Uh, Referring to Deuteronomy 24, one, for he found in her an indecency cause. So that's one that Shammai sounds a lot like Jesus, right? Some kind of indecent thing. If there's that, then, then, then a divorce is okay. But other than that, just leave it alone. The school of Hillel says, even if she spoiled his dish, he can divorce her. Uh, since it says any cause. Using the same Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy passage, but reading it very differently. Uh, and... As you, it's maybe a big surprise to you, uh, this is a male-dominated culture, and so a lot of the guys were listening to Shammai and Hillel, and they were like, you know, that Hillel's got it figured out. That's a really good way. Like literally, um, the the permissiveness for divorce uh, in the in the ancient uh, Near East in, in Jesus' day was ridiculous. Uh, this was, Hillel won the, the, the battle between the schools, and it was generally accepted that a Jewish man, for any reason at all, anything he felt like, this, she's not living up to my standards, boom, she's gone. That was the world that Jesus entered into. Now, just to show you what their, um, how that, those different um, interpretations came about, I want to show you Deuteronomy one. This up on the top here, it's uh, from the Hebrew Uh, The Hebrew is very vague about what it is that um, is the cause for divorce. It says, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, sends her. He finds something indecent. Uh, That's one way you can read the Hebrew there. It's vague. It could be something that uh, maybe strikes of sexual inappropriateness, possibly, But it also could be translated this way, and this is how the Septuagint or the Greek translation of the uh, Old Testament reads it. And this is probably the the version that most people in Jesus' day listen to. It says, And if anyone should take a wife and live with her, and then it happens that she does not find favor before him because he has found some unbecoming thing in her, that uh, he shall write for her a bill of divorce and give it to her hands, and he shall send her away. So adultery and divorce in Jesus' day is, um, well, it, it, you can see, if, if that's some unbecoming thing, and it's very permissive. It's like, oh, well, she spoiled the dinner, so she's out. But, you know, she, she's not the flower of youth and beauty that she used to be, so you know, get me a new model. Like, that, that is the, that is the, the mentality behind um, divorce in uh, Jesus' day. Um, moreover, you'll notice that the language there is, a man, a man, a man. Do women women have zero agency here and uh, if we go to the next slide uh, I want to bring this out adultery and divorce in Jesus day it is all on men 0% of divorces in the ancient near east and Jesus day were initiated by women notice how radically different that is than today where it's 69% okay 0% of divorces were begun by women they didn't have the right to do it uh, it was something in the ancient, in in Jewish culture that was only a man's prerogative uh, next permissive culture Anything goes. There are no limits or laws or rules um, for a man in uh, Jesus' day to uh, send his wife away. Now, the good news is that divorce was still frowned upon, and so it was actually less prominent than uh, it is in our culture. Uh, but uh, a man never felt like um, he was doing something wrong um, before God when he, when he divorced a woman because it was the teaching that, that he knew that it was okay. Uh, the next thing... Hard-on women. One thing that happens, in the ancient Near East, uh, in Jesus' day, the only people who are able to make money are men. Uh, this is a world where backbreaking labor is the only way to make a living. Almost everyone that Jesus speaks to is a peasant who works by the sweat of their brow. Women do not succeed economically in this world. What that means is, is that as soon as a woman is divorced, given a certificate of divorce, she has a very strong incentive to run to the next house down and be like, marry me! Because she doesn't want to starve to death. Okay? There is a very strong economic, economic and security incentive for women in Jesus' day to remarry immediately after being divorced. Now you can see how this might be very damaging to them. What if the guy down the street is like, man, if you're not good enough for so-and-so, then you're not good enough for me. I can do better. As soon as that mentality hits, this woman is basically pushed to the brink of poverty. And she is in danger for her life. The last thing. Men are the one who cheat in this culture. Uh, today, this is very different. 50-50 uh, for the first time in, in history, as far as we know, that men and women are cheating. And, and pre- really, probably the reason is opportunity. Uh, women were mostly confined to the home. Uh, you can think of the analog in uh, traditional uh, Muslim culture right now, where women are—they're guarded and they're very, very infrequently allowed to be by themselves. So they didn't have a lot of opportunity to cheat. Men, on the other hand, had lots of opportunity to cheat, and they did. So if you if you listen again, hear Jesus teaching within the context, recognize that he's talking to guys right now. By the way, ladies, I'm not letting you off the hook. We're going we're gonna to get you, too. I'm just saying uh, we have to sort of trans, we have to translate from the culture so that we don't, um, we don't misunderstand Jesus' words. So let's go back. Let's look at the text again. Let's see um, about uh, divorce and adultery with, with all of that in the back of our minds. You have heard that the law says don't commit adultery. Well, I tell you the man who's always looking at a woman in order to lust has already committed adultery. So, you live in this culture. It's kind of frowned upon to, to divorce, but, you know, you can if you need to. You're a guy. Things aren't going well at home. You're out and about. What do you do? Well, you make a habit of looking for good-looking women. Right? And, and you do because, you know, there's that, To be honest, there's that... Uh, that feeling you get, it's, uh, it's transient, but it, 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 it's satisfying in that moment where you just, <sighs> yes. And, and you're not just looking uh, for that, but you, because you're not getting satisfied uh, sexually at home, you're, you're more, then, then you, you, not only are you looking for girls, but you're also looking to maybe fantasize about them, right? To get to a place where you can have what you aren't getting at home. What's interesting, uh, of course, we're, we're going to be talking about pornography and masturbation. That's um, a huge, huge issue. Uh, what's interesting, though, is that now we're in a situation where it's not just men who are, um, sexually frustrated, who are subject to this teaching, because now we're in uh, an environment where apparently women, too, are really, they're, they're, whatever is supposed to happen in the house, they're emotionally, um, uh, malnourished, uh, they're, they're not being, uh, treated as beautiful and loved correctly, and so they start looking out for other ways to, um, to, to get those, 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 sat- that satisfaction that they're looking for, emotional satisfaction, prob- probably, probably, And what do they do? I mean, uh, we're speaking in broad terms here because both men and women use Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, whatever else uh, to, you know, find that person that you had a crush on in high school and boy, isn't it great to connect with them again. And don't you feel appreciated for the first time in a long time when you go out to to, to, to connect with that person and then uh, you, you're reading um, you know, online the, the, the women's magazines online and, and, and looking at what, you know, doing a diagnosis of my relationship. Am I happy? One out of ten. And, and you're, you're just fours across the board. And you're like, I deserve better than this. And then you look at, at what constitutes a good relationship, and you're like, that's not mine. I, I, I long for that. And so you go out, um, and the workplace is another... Uh, so I think right now the, um, the number of, uh, I, I read this, adultery, the, the highest percentage of adultery takes place with work colleagues. That's uh, the number one place where um, people uh, cheat in the United States today. Go, going on in the, in the text... Oh, wait, before, just just so you know, um, I've, th- there's a present participle there. The man who is always looking at women, again, it's a, there's a sense of not only this is going on a long time, that's the, the Greek, but also a major push for intent. I say in order to, to lust. It's like you, de- you need something, you need some kind of gratification. A- and, and you're doing it over and over. It's a practice. This is, this is something that you habituate um, because you need this satisfaction or contentment that you're not getting somewhere else. I want to move on to in the text? Um, whoever divorces his wife must give her a divorce certificate. Well, if you're not in the in the business of cheating, well, that's great news because you can just divorce whomever you like, and then you're, so your your situation is now you're free and you can go elsewhere to get um, satisfaction, and, and you're given uh, permission by the law because of Hillel's school and and how they've how they've made uh, divorce kind of no fault, sort of like in present day circumstances. If you're not happy, you have an option. You have a very clear option to go and get what you want somewhere else. That's the first thing in your note sheets. The problem begins when a spouse begins seeking sexual or emotional satisfaction outside of the marriage. Jesus is identifying this problem. He's saying lust and divorce for men are causing adultery, causing um, divorce. Divorce. And it's having a detrimental effect on women. It's having a detrimental effect on families. It's having a detrimental effect on relationships. So what are we going to do? Let's look at the text again. Uh, Jesus says this. He says, well, here's what I want you to do. If your right eye is the reason you're stumbling, tear it out. Awesome. Better for you to lose one part of your body than have the whole thing tossed into Gehenna. And we'll not worry about Gehenna today, uh, that'll be future, we'll do a study on that. If your right hand is the reason you're stumbling, cut it off and throw it away. Better that you should lose one body part than have the whole thing end up in Gehenna. That's pretty rough. Jesus is obviously being hyperbolic here. Um, If he weren't, then uh, all the men here who are faithful Christians would be uh, blind and unable to hold things. Um because let's be honest Right. Jesus, and Jesus knows this. Remember, he's in a culture where what his goal here is, he's like, we've got to get a stop to this cheating and divorce. It's, it's tearing us apart. We've got to do something. And he's like, here's, a, here's a radical transforming initiative, something that you can do, you who are listening to, to, to go and, and do this, and then things are going to change. And he, and he uses hyperbole. Like, it's so crazy. It's so important, so critical. You'd be willing to just, just gouge out your eyes so you never see another girl again and cut off your hands so you never, He's probably referring here to masturbation. So that you never uh, have that freedom, that way to get release outside of the comfort of your spouse. He goes on. Anyone who divorces his wife forces her to commit adultery. And then whoever ends up marrying her commits adultery too. You're living in this world where you think, oh, I'm following the law. Whenever she bothers me or bores me, I get rid of her. And then I get a new one. And then when she bothers me, I get her to her, and then I get a new one, and it's all good. I'm telling you, no, that's not what's good. What's actually happening is that you're forcing her, because she has to get remarried if she wants to live, you're forcing her into a situation of adultery with somebody else. You're forcing her, because your, your reason for divorce is illegitimate. It's wrong. It's not a real divorce. The divorce that you gave her is fake. And so as a result, she's a married woman with somebody else, because she has to if she's going to survive. That's what you're doing when you just kick her to the side of the road, man. So instead, take that off the table. Guys, take that off the table. Take off the possibility of looking at so-and-so. Take off the possibility of sexual satisfaction without your wife. Take away the possibility that you're just going to kick her out the door when she makes a bad meal. Get those away from you. Cut those off. This is the next thing in, in your, your note sheets. Jesus suggests a transforming practice. Cut off any possibility of satisfaction outside of your spouse. Just be done with it. And so uh, in our contemporary context, where it's both men and women, and really now primarily women, who are initiating divorce, and where it is um, equal, where, where adultery is taking place, what Jesus is saying is, he's saying, what is it that's giving you those little jollies that you think you need in order to be happy? What is it? And I want you to just take it and get rid of it, because what it's doing is it's leading you down a road that will end up in disaster." That is a terrible teaching. I mean, you heard it, right? You heard what he just said. He said, well, You cut off any possibility of, of divorce, cut off any possibility of having any sexual or emotional satisfaction outside of the marriage. What, you, what Jesus is doing, right, is he's condemning all of us who are in bad marriages to being miserable for the rest of our lives. Right? Isn't that what just happened? That's what the world says. The world says that as soon as you, you know, try to... stop. You know, as soon as you cut off those, those, those exits, like what you're doing is you are condemning yourself to a sexless or, or lost or broken, uh, sad, uh, hopeless failure of a relationship. And you're just grinding it out. You're staying together for the kids. Maybe not. This is cool. This is a, this is a painting of um, Cortes, uh, his invasion of uh, the Aztec civilization in South America in the early 16th century. Cortes, uh, (laughs) he had been commanded by the crown uh, to go and and either sue for peace or conquer or whatever, but don't come back to Cuba, which is where he launched off from, or certainly not... um, Europe, without making significant inroads into Aztec territory, he uh, lands um, about two hundred miles from Teran that was not the correct pronunciation the capital of the Aztec empire he knows it's about two hundred miles inland um, and so he de- deboards his six hundred soldiers and the and their, their their auxiliary staff the 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 uh, sailors and whatnot, and they put together a camp, and they start planning uh, how they're going to go into and take over uh, the Aztecs. And what he finds is that his soldiers are like, this is terrible, this is a stupid idea. (laughs) Like, you remember how great it was in Cuba? I mean, they had everything that they needed. Uh, There was much less disease that had already been settled. They had regular commerce with Europe. No one was trying to kill them, which was great. They were like, they, that seems a lot better than this madcap idea to you know go 200 miles to the, uh, the the capital of this entire civilization, only 600 of us, and try to just wipe them out. That, that seems totally nuts. And they started to plan a mutiny. And so legend has it that Cor- Cortez took his uh, his loyal his loyal guys and, and they went and they burned all the boats. They just said, uh, no getting back now. No Cuba. No hope for Cuba. Cuba's done. In reality, they actually probably they just scuttled them, but burn your boat sounds cool. Uh, they, they probably used their cannons and shot them basically straight down and just destroyed the hull so that the, the ships would, would sink. And before they did that, take off all the rigging so there was no way um, to sail them anymore. The point being, there was no way back. The only way was through. Cortez was not the first uh, to come up with this idea. We actually uh, probably the earliest example of someone really thinking through the art of war is Sun Tzu, the Art of War, written probably five hundred to four hundred BC uh, in uh, in China. This is what Sun Tzu says, if you want to win. Now, before we read this, I want you to know, this is a section where Sun Tzu, he's like, he, he comes up with like nine different ways that you can, nine different battle situations, right? So the first battle situation is a really good one. You have overwhelming force, and you're... Um, you're on your home territory, they're small, and you're just going to go wipe them out. That's the first one. And then they get progressively worse. Here's one where you're sort of hemmed in on sides. Here's one where um, you're in enemy territory, but you do have good supply lines. And finally, at the very end, he gets to the worst possible situation for an army. And that is, you are in desperate straits. The enemy is overwhelming. You're deep in the enemy's territory. You do not have the the, the manpower or the equipment or anything to win. And everybody expects you to lose. You are in desperate ground. And this is what Sun Tzu recommends to would-be generals. Throw your soldiers into positions from whence there is no escape, and they will prefer death to flight. And if they'll face death, there is nothing that they cannot achieve. Officers and men alike will put forth their utmost strength. He goes on and says, at the critical moment, the leader of an army acts like one who has climbed up a height and then kicks the ladder. In it kicks away the ladder behind him. He carries his men deep into hostile territory before he shows his hand. He burns his boats, he breaks his cooking pots like a shepherd driving a flock of sheep. He drives his men this way and that, and not one knows where he is going. Not probably a general loved by his men, but probably a general who gives them the only chance they have to live. They're in a desperate strait. There's guns on all sides, and their only way out is through. And so what does what does Sun Tzu say? Well, what your men are thinking about, what the soldiers want, is they want an escape. They want a path of least resistance. They want a way out of the situation. Take it away. And then see what they do. I guarantee you that as soon as they recognize the situation, as soon as they realize that there is no hope except to fight They will fight and you will never have seen them fight harder. They will go to war for you. And you will not even have to tell them to do it. They will go through any obstacle because they have nothing left to lose. There is no hope except victory. That radical teaching about war is the same teaching that Jesus gives about our marriages and our relationships. If you're in a desperate spot and things look hopeless the only thing you can do is kick away your ladders burn your boats give up every opportunity you have to have a little bit of a little bit of emotional satisfaction or sexual satisfaction or whatever outside of your spouse get rid of them all get rid of them because as soon as you have that you're going to be like boy I want those things and your only opportunity only hope to get them will be to go to war with your spouse you will have to fight like hell. And it will not be fun. Because what's going to happen is you're going to have to open up a lot of wounds. And not only that, you're going to have to trust and hope and pray that um, your spouse is on the same page, because this won't work if only one of them does it. Jesus' teaching assumes that the wife is desperate to to have a good marriage. Um, We can't assume that in in our current context. What it means is it means that uh, whatever wounds, whatever bitterness, whatever anger, whatever deep-seated confusion and pain is down there, you're going to have to rip it open together. Isn't it interesting that Jesus gives this teaching right after what we learned last week about the importance of being people who make peace? People who can look at any conflict and dive in and own their crap, get it all out on the the table, apologize, find a way, look over sins or bitternesses or hurts, and, and, and just find a way to make things right. Isn't it interesting that this is right after that? If if you have two people who are in the business of being peacemakers, of being reconcilers, and that's what they're good at, that's what they've practiced, that's what they do, and suddenly they find themselves in this marriage and there's war going on, these are the kinds of people who will make it. They're the ones who, once they have burned their boats, will be able to reconcile, to really give wholly to the other and make the marriage flourish. Jesus' teaching forces spouses into conflict that leads to reconciliation. It's a hard saying. Um, I'd just like to take this second to say, all right, given what we've heard about Jesus, given what we've um, seen about his teaching here, and, and also the context. I think um, the first thing we have to say is that uh, Jesus is walking into a situation where divorce is normal. It's real and it's painful. It's messy. He is not walking into a situation where everybody's good, great, pure, whatever. He's not walking into a situation where marriages are fantastic and he's like, let's make them even more fantastic. No, he's walking into a situation where people are bleeding. And he's doing triage. What that means is that for those of you here who have been through divorce, you've initiated divorce, you've been left, Jesus doesn't want divorce, but he also isn't out to condemn you and destroy you and make you feel terrible. Jesus came to save the lost. Jesus came to bring forgiveness and redemption. Jesus came because he was not interested in the old way anymore. He's interested in the new way. And if that's your past, guess what? That's in the past. That's done with. It's over. It's finished. Now is the time for the new way, the new hope, the new life, the new transforming initiative so that it doesn't happen anymore. There is not a person here who should hang their head in shame because of past actions. Jesus is not interested in dragging up your baggage and, and, and holding you down with it. What he's interested in is for you to take a stand right now and say, I want to be ready for heaven. I want to flourish today. And I realize that the, the hard work of doing that begins with sex. Sex is a big part of it. And in order to make it right, we might have to do some really, really tough stuff. Think about that. Uh, I promised you one transforming initiative, getting ready for heaven. Isn't it interesting that uh, our picture of heaven is that um, God is all in all in heaven. And when we finally enter the kingdom of God, his love, his grace, his mercy is going to pour over us. And we will literally have nothing else that brings us joy and satisfaction except our relationship to the Godhead. Father, Son, and Spirit will be the only place where we experience joy, satisfaction, contentment, peace, understanding. It will all flow from this relationship. What kind of person is ready for that? The person who here and now has said, I'm going to burn my boats. The dream of, you know, that perfect marriage. The dream of of, of a life of, of flourishing together. Uh, as, as a unit. Who is ready to do that? It's two people who agree we're going to burn our boats. If you've uh, experienced and been a part of divorce and adultery, um, take heart. Because God is a God, forgiving God. He's not interested in wrecking you. What he's interested in is having new life and transforming you so that you can participate in it fully. There's only been one marriage in the history of marriages where everything was right and perfect and it was always the other person's fault and um, that everything was wrong was with them and, and that's my marriage to Erin. Everything uh, is clearly her fault and I'm perfect. Isn't that how it seems sometimes? Isn't that how we kind of think about it? I can't believe she did this to me. Uh, what Jesus, what Jesus is saying is he's saying, be willing to sit down, burn your boats, and go to war with this woman. Sit down, burn your boats, and go to war with this man. And if you do, you might win. Let's pray. Gracious God and Father, we... Um, we confess that we're a sexually broken people. Our desires uh, go unmet. Our, our needs are, are sometimes bewildering and strange. And yet, in the middle of that, you've called us uh, to lives of fidelity. God, I pray that you would give every heart here, single, married, uh, divorced, a widowed, every heart, uh, a desire and, and, a, and a hope of, of burning boats, of just setting everything aside, looking for satisfaction nowhere outside of the marriage bond and then in the future with just you, God. I pray that we would be willing to set fire to anything that holds us back from that. I pray that there's not one couple where, where one uh, man decides to go for it and one woman doesn't, or one woman decides to go for it and one man doesn't, but instead we have a complete, full, total commitment from all here to burn our boats, to get ready for heaven, to flourish now, to be transformed by your love and in your community. All this we uh, pray in Jesus' name. Amen.